Good morning, everyone. My name is Austin Pinckney. If you don't know me, uh, I'm an elder here at Cornerstone. I'm really glad to be here this morning. Glad for everyone that God has brought here today. Uh, I'm going to open up with a story. My grandfather served in World War II. He was a, a mechanic, airplane mechanic stationed in England. And uh, so he worked on B-17 bombers and these things. Uh, he had to get them, uh, you know, patched up. Part of their job was patching them back up, sending them back out to the fight, right? So um, they'd come in all shot up. Uh, maybe the landing gear gets shot up or the, the pilot in their fatigue forgets to put the landing gear down. They, they crash land them, slide them in on the bellies, all kind of crazy stuff. Um, so they had to, to get them going again, right? And so these, these airplanes, these B-17s, they have four big engines, uh, two on each wing. And uh, if you had to do any work to the engines, you had to crawl inside the wing. And so to get to the outermost engines, uh, you had to, they had these sheepskin coats. They'd turn them inside out, lay on them, and had to kind of slide up in there. And, uh, and then they'd have someone helping them out, uh, handing them tools. And they as well had to have them uh, grab them by the ankles and pull them out. It was so tight. So my grandfather, uh, being a fairly small guy, pretty skinny, uh, was usually volunteered uh, by the army to do this kind of stuff, right? So uh, one day, or maybe it was night, he was uh, in there working on this airplane engine, and the air raid siren goes off, and his buddy that's helping him takes off running uh, to the shelter and leaves him there. And so he's, he's in there for a couple of minutes, probably, and uh, kind of not knowing what's going on. It's dark. And, and in those kind of two minutes there, probably, I, I don't know, I don't remember from the story how long he was there, uh, but he's kind of in there in the dark, kind of looking death in the eyes, if you will. Um, if he'd never really thought about what it might be like to die, he was probably thinking about it then. And so his, uh, his friend came back and grabbed him by the ankles and pulled him out, you know, and he um, obviously lived to tell me the story. And uh, it was one of my favorite stories. Uh, he told it to me numerous times along with other stories. And, uh, and so, you know, in thinking about that, we, as um, cultures worldwide, every culture tells stories, right? We have books and movies that we love. We have stories that we pass down uh, through family members, um, oral traditions, stuff like that. So we love stories, right? And that's really what we're getting at today is uh, some stories of the Bible. We're going to be talking, we're doing this series called Binge Reading the Bible. And we're kind of talking about books of the Bible by genre. And so today we're looking at like the historical narrative of, um, of Israel. And so uh, in kind of in doing this series, we've kind of adopted this phrase from the Bible Project. It's uh, the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. So that's kind of our framework uh, that we're using to look at how to read these stories. Um, so today we're going to kind of look at how the historical narratives of the Old Testament lead to Jesus? How do they point to Jesus? That's kind of our, our goal for today. Um, so to, uh, to kind of give you, um, what, are the, what are the books that talk about? What are these historical narratives? What books are those? They include uh, the books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, First and Second Chronicles, and Esther. So these books cover a lot of history, a lot of stories in these books. They cover the, uh, uh, the possession and loss of the promised land, the, God, the land that God promised to the Israelites, the land of Canaan. 
Uh, it covers the rule of judges and kings. So before Israel had kings, they were essentially ruled by a series of judges. Um, thinking about like, like Samson is a famous judge. You've probably heard the story of Samson. He was a judge of Israel. And then kings, um, David and Solomon are probably some of the more famous kings of Israel. Uh, these books cover the division of the kingdom. Uh, the kingdom after the reign of Solomon was divided into uh, Judah and Israel. Uh, then we see the, the Babylonian exile where these two kingdoms are both um, overtaken by Babylon and, and the Israelites go into exile in Babylon. And then we see the return to Jerusalem. They go back and they rebuild the wall, they rebuild the temple. And uh, so those, that's kind of like what, to, in, a, in a brief, very quick uh, synopsis, that's what these books kind of cover. That's the history that they tell us. And it's kind of in a narrative form. It's basically a story. Um, more or less in linear fashion. So as we, um, as we read these books, kind of, uh, this is kind of bringing me to my first point for today. We have kind of a framework that I want to use for reading these historical narratives. And uh, even I think it can be applied to um, the rest of the Bible as well. But that is that God is the hero of the story. So as we read through these books, these stories, these historical narratives, uh, they're just peppered with messianic themes. And what I mean by that, so a Messiah is uh, like a savior, right? Someone who comes to save. And so all throughout these books, we kind of see this pattern of Israel that Israel's in where they, uh, they rebel against God. It's a cycle of rebellion, God's judgment, Israel's repentance, and then uh, God's deliverance of Israel. Um, to kind of highlight that, I have a verse here from Second Chronicles. It's uh, chapter 7, verses 14 through 22. Uh, it's fairly long. Um, actually, um, I'm going to start a verse earlier. I decided to do that kind of after the fact, um, but I'll catch up with the screen uh, eventually. So it's fairly long, but bear with me. Um, so here's, this is it. This is God speaking. If I shut the sky so there is no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people, and my people who bear my name humble themselves, pray, and seek my face, and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. My eyes will now be open and my ears attentive to prayer from this place. And I have now chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, doing everything I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and ordinances, I will establish your royal throne as I promised your father David. You will never fail to have a man ruling in Israel. However, if you turn away and abandon my statutes and my commands that I have set before you, and if you go and serve other gods and bow and worship to them, then I will uproot Israel from the soil that I gave them, and this temple that I have sanctified for my name I will banish from my presence. I will make it an object of scorn and ridicule among all the peoples. As for this temple which was exalted, everyone who passes by will be appalled and will say, Why did the Lord do this to this land and this temple? They will say, because they abandoned the Lord God of their ancestors who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They clung to other gods and bowed and worshipped to them and served them. Because of this, he brought all this ruin on them. So there's a lot there, but kind of what I want to just highlight by that is just this pattern, how God essentially, um, in Israel's unbelief, turns them over to their sin, essentially. Turns them over to their own flesh. Um, and allows them to kind of go off the rails, right? Uh, and then, of course, we see uh, a pattern of deliverance. So God is the deliverer. God is the hero of the story. So keep that in mind. Keep that in the back of your heads. Uh, today we're going to look at a familiar story. You've probably heard 
Uh, it's in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. It's the story of David and Goliath. Uh, before we do that, though, um, we've talked about kind of how we want to read the Bible, this idea of a unified story that leads to Jesus and uh, how God is the, is the hero of the story, right? But for just a, a brief um, minute here, I want to talk about how not to read the Bible. And I got this information from um, uh, mostly from the Bible Project. There's some good resources. They have a podcast that's really, really good. And then there's uh, also a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Uh, and there's numerous things that we kind of bring to the Bible when we read it, sort of our own um, kind of what we look for or something in the Bible. And there's a lot of them, but, and I don't really want to talk about all of them today. Um, so if you, do, uh, if you want more information on those, those are some good resources. But I do want to focus on one that I think is kind of especially important when we read these historical narratives. And that is that the Bible is not a moral handbook. So what do I mean by that? We're on, we, we don't read it strictly to pull morality from it. We do, um, I would say, gain, get morality from it. As Christians, I think we have a more or less unified set of beliefs, moral, ethical beliefs that we um, adhere to. Um, but we, when we read it, we can't just look for like the moral of the story. Uh, and there's a reason why, we, why, we, why it's dangerous to do that. It kind of makes the character the hero, the, the, uh, the human character of the story, the hero, rather than God. And so uh, the danger in that is there's, there's like three things. One, uh, Bible characters are not the people, the, the, the human Bible characters are not moral. Okay, Jesus is the only really moral person in the Bible, right? They're all messed up. Um, if you read through this stuff, uh, Abby even mentioned this morning, even, even the, the story uh, of Hagar, Abraham and Sarah, it's messy. They mess up. They sin. David was an adulterer and a murderer. And this is a man that the Bible describes after God's own heart, God's anointed king of Israel, right? So they're not moral people. They're not necessarily always good role models. Uh, the next thing is that um, essentially when we look at the character as the hero, uh, it boils down to legalism. We might say, how do I be like David or Abraham? How do I have faith like Abraham and strength like David? And it boils down to this like checklist. Okay, I do this, this, and this to be like them, and, uh, and God will love me. And uh, that's a, a dangerous trap because we know it's by the work of Christ that we are, um, that we are made holy, right? And then third, uh, it kind of comes off of that is uh, when we do this, it, it, we essentially rely on ourselves to be like these characters. We rely on ourselves to have faith like David. We think, you know, if I can just muster up this faith that I can slay my giant. And uh, really what we see in this story of David Goliath is that, um, you know, faith is from God and that God kind of raised up David to be the Savior. It's not that David, you know, mustered up a certain amount of faith and was able to do it. So um, that's kind of, you know, we, let's not get caught in that trap of trying to find a moral of the story. Rather, uh, let's read the Bible recognizing and, and trying to understand how God is the hero and sort of recognizing a, the pattern of like a, the messianic theme because it's, all throughout the Bible. So that being said, uh, let's go into David and Goliath, the actual story here. It's in 1 Samuel um, chapter 17. I'm going to back up a little bit to like chapter 8 to give you a little bit of um, just kind of background to set the scene of what's going on here. So uh, during this time, Samuel, the prophet, is kind of like the leader of Israel. He's, he's the prophet. Uh, his sons, however, are corrupt no good, and uh, 
Israel comes to Samuel and says, hey, we want a king. All the other nations around us, they're all ruled by a king. We want a, how come we don't have a king? We want a king too, right? So Samuel uh, doesn't really like this. He goes to God and asks God what to do. And this is God's response here, 1 Samuel 8, 7-8. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. So uh, the Lord tells Samuel to let them have a king, that they're not um, turning away from Samuel, but they're ultimately turning away from God, right? Um, God was supposed to be the king of Israel. They have a heavenly king. Why do they need an earthly king? But of course, like we see, God has sort of turned them over to the hardness of their hearts. So um, Saul is anointed king. Uh, he is anointed king because he's taller than everybody else. That apparently was the qualification. Um, so he's, he stands like a head over them, I think it says, something to that extent. Very big guy. Uh, but God ends up rejecting Saul because of his disobedience. Saul uh, disobeys God, and God rejects him as king. And uh, so David... Ha- uh, David is anointed as king. Um, God sends Samuel to anoint David. To find him, God chooses David specifically. Uh, he's the youngest son of a man named Jesse. He has older brothers, um, but he's the youngest, kind of the smallest. He's uh, the shepherd. He, I guess that job, that duty, that chore has been put off on him. So he's been anointed. At this, when we come to the story of David and Goliath, he's been anointed the king of Israel. However, he hasn't actually like assumed the office. Saul is still in charge. Um, and I don't think he actually knows that all this is going on necessarily. Um, so anyways, that brings us to the battle of David and Goliath. So to kind of set the scene, uh, these two armies, the, the Israeli army and the Philistines, they are sort of camped out on opposing mountains, and there's a valley between them. So they both kind of have this position of high ground. Uh, if you like Star Wars, you know the importance of having the high ground. It's kind of a military advantage um, and neither one really wants to like give up that advantage and go into the valley. And to make matters worse, the Philistines have this huge guy. Um, his name is Goliath. Uh, I mean, he comes out and taunts Israel every morning and evening. So let's, uh, we'll read that, 1 Samuel 17, 8 through 11. He, being Goliath, stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations, Why do you come out to line up in battle formation? He asked them, Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. So they're afraid, right? Israel and Saul are absolutely afraid of this guy. The way the Bible, the way the story describes him, uh, he's massive. If you Google David and Goliath, you get uh, uh, anywhere from like 7 feet to 12 feet, something like that. I don't think they're absolutely sure. Um, but if you imagine, I think um, Andre the Giant, if you liked wrestling, or if you liked the Princess Bride, he plays uh, the giant Fezzik. Um, he was said to be like 7 foot 4. So he's a big guy. At least Andre the Giant, right? If not more. Um, he talks about the weight of his armor, massive armor, a massive spear with a, a, a point on it that weighs, I think, like 15 pounds is what they say. He has a shield bearer that goes in front of him. So, I, I mean, if you even get to the guy, you're, you're, 
you're, you're doing well. You're probably, when they look at Goliath, they're looking death in the face is what it comes down to. They, it's certain death. If we go into battle, you will most definitely die. None of them stand a chance, right? Saul, the biggest guy in the, of the Israelites, um, the king, he is afraid even. And maybe even people are expecting, well, Saul's the king. He's the biggest one. Maybe he should go. And maybe he's feeling that weight. So they're, they're absolutely terrified. And this goes on for 40 days. So this goes on every, every morning and evening for 40 days. So it's kind of um, getting, like, what do we do? How do we face this problem? How do we solve this problem? So what we see here, uh, this is kind of bringing us toward that theme, this like messianic theme of God being the hero. Uh, we see a people in need of a Messiah, right? We need a people in need of a Savior. So at this point in the story, we have our unlikely Savior comes on the scene. Uh, David is sent by his father. He's been tending his father's sheep. His father sends him to the battle with provisions for his sons, milk and bread. Maybe, maybe not milk. Cheese and bread, I think it says. Anyways, he sends them and, and asks them to check on them, see how they're doing. And while David is there, he hears Goliath's challenge. He hears him out there um, taunting Israel, all his things that he's saying, challenging them. And he also hears the Israelites talking about Saul's reward for the volunteers, which includes... Uh, essentially money. He, he promises his daughter in marriage, and uh, he says that the, his father's, the person's father's house will be free, uh, meaning they don't have to pay taxes, stuff like that. So you know, David's asking about these things. He's asking the, the Israelite guys, you know, about everything that's going on. And his, o- his older brother Eliab hears him and, and rebukes him for being, calls him basically just a naughty boy. He says, go home. Uh, you just came out to see the battle. Just go home. You're just a kid, you know. And uh, so word gets around uh, kind of after all this, that this, this guy, David, asking about Goliath and, and say, asking, like, who came to oppose the, the living God, the real, the one true God, you know? So um, David is brought to Saul, and uh, essentially David says, you know, I'll, I'll go fight Goliath. And Saul kind of looks at him and says, uh, you're not big enough, you know? You're just a kid. So um, this gets into the uh, kind of God's actual deliverance of Israel through this, right? This is where this kind of starts happening. So uh, at this point, we'll take a minute to note kind of how God works. Uh, so one thing might be like miracles. You think about God delivering people through miracles. Think about the parting of the Red Sea. Pretty familiar story. Um, the, the Jews coming out, of it, coming out of Egypt. They're being chased by the Egyptians and God parts the Red Sea for them to walk through. And then as the Egyptians come through, it washes back in on them and they drown. Um, And so that is a miracle. There's no, uh, it's sort of a suspension of the natural order of things, right? Uh, It kind of interrupts the natural. The oceans don't do that. Seas don't do this. It's not like once a year this thing opens up and they just timed it right and got through there. That was a miracle of God, right? And the, the other way that God works is essentially providence, the idea of kind of the, um, the day-to-day sort of working and arrangements, uh, God sovereignly working through these things. And, and kind of what I mean is that uh, since the creation of earth, God has been working through men and women uh, to bring about his will, right? Um, even thinking about the Bible has been written by men. That's kind of a good example, I would say. Um, so he's working through people, through providence. And I would say that's kind of what we see in this story is that God, through providence, raised up David to be uh, the savior of Israel in this instance. So uh, for one thing, he's already been anointed king, right? That's kind of a, 
uh, points to his, um, God choosing him to do this. He's been anointed by Samuel as the king of Israel, whether he's taken the office or not, he's been chosen. Also through providence, God has prepared him for this. Uh, we see in the text that David has fought bears and lions as a shepherd. In 1 Samuel 17, verses 34 through 37, this is where Saul is saying, hey, you're just a kid, you know, you're not equipped to fight Goliath. And David answered Saul, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So we see... David being prepared for this by God, anointed by God and prepared, raised up in a way um, that God needs, God is going to use him to do this, right? So to carry on with the story, Saul gives David uh, his armor. Uh, David tries it on, but he ends up um, taking it off. He says, uh, in, in some translations, he says, like, I have not tested it. He's not used to it. Doesn't, it's clunky. He doesn't know how to walk around. And he prefers, he goes into battle um, with his staff and a sling and a few stones. Um, I, I googled how to make one of these slings. I considered making one and bringing it, but I didn't have time. Um, but it's essentially like a small like kind of leather pouch with two strings, and you would swing it. The rock would go in the pouch, and you swing it, and then let one of the strings go, and the, and the rock will go flying, right? Um, so this is his weapon. He goes, he chooses five stones, five smooth stones, and he comes out onto the battlefield, and uh, Goliath taunts him. He says uh, something like, uh, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks and stones? And uh, he curses David by his own, by the Philistine gods. And this is David's reply. <clears throat> Excuse me. 1 Samuel 17, 45-47. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God, and this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. This is David's reply. Uh, he comes in recognizing that um, essentially God is the one delivering Samuel over to the Philistines, not himself, right? Um, so to just to keep going here, uh, David kills Goliath, right? Um, in the verses 48 through 51, when the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. David ran and stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from its sheath, and used it to kill him. Then he cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. So, uh, pretty gruesome for one thing. If you thought the Bible was boring, uh, it is not. It is chock full of all kinds of stuff. So, um, yeah, we see David prevailing over Goliath, right? Uh, by this sling and this stone, this, this very unlikely hero comes to the, God uses to come to the rescue of Israel. So um, to trace that theme, it's a, we see a people in need of a savior. 
Uh, we see an unlikely Savior that God has chosen, God has anointed, and then we see uh, his unlikely victory. God's using him to overcome the Philistines. And so uh, this is kind of a story that gets maybe often... Um, it's one that I chose this one because it often gets looked at in the wrong way. We often look at it with the, what's the moral of the story? Um, maybe you've heard a, a sermon kind of like, well, um, you know, facing your giants or slaying your Goliath, and maybe it's something in life that's um, very difficult, and we just have to pick up the stone of faith and, and sling it or something, you know. Um, and I'm not saying that life is not hard and that we shouldn't pray to have faith like David But what I want us to recognize is that faith is not something that we muster up, something that we do within ourselves to overcome these things. Rather, uh, it's a gift from God. Um, God enables us to go through these things. And so I think uh, if we are kind of, uh, if we take the veggie tales approach, you know, little guys can do big things too. We we fall a little bit short of the meaning of the text and we we kind of miss the point. And, uh, And so, yeah, God essentially is the hero here. So, to, uh, to kind of wrap up, uh, doesn't the story of, of David and Goliath sound a lot like the cross of Christ? Um, we have uh, a people in need of a Savior, of a Messiah, right? All of us, the world. Um, we have an unlikely Savior. Jesus was um, not, uh, he didn't appear in any special way. He was fairly plain looking, the Bible describes him. He, uh, he didn't have any armies or horses, chariots, or swords or anything. The, the, the Jews of the time were looking for more of a political savior than anything. They, uh, they, they saw Rome as essentially their Goliath rather than sin and death. And they were um, hoping for a, a, a Messiah that would come along and deliver them from Rome. Kind of looking at the wrong enemy, really. Um, and of course, Jesus takes on... Uh, sin and death. He takes on this thing that we can't overcome. He looks um, sin and death in the face and takes it on for us. But, uh, but Jesus is not like David. David is a man. He's sinful, right? He falls short of the glory of God. And so uh, just like all the, we see, like I said, this, this um, theme of um, uh, this messianic theme that runs all throughout the Old Testament, these historical narratives, God is using men to redeem Israel, but they all fall short. Jesus does not. He's the Son of God. He's the perfect Son of God, and uh, he takes on our sin, right? So I want to close here with uh, just one more story. This is from the New Testament. It's from the book of Luke. This is, uh, it's in, it's in from, the, from chapter 24, the last chapter of Luke. So uh, this is after the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection. Um, it's been a wild ride there. It's... Um, a lot has gone on. It's taking place during the Passover, which is like the biggest Jewish festival. And uh, so Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. And these two disciples are walking down the road. They don't know he's been resurrected at this point. They're walking down the road. They're going to a place called Emmaus. Maybe it's where they're from. And uh, they're talking about everything that's gone on in the last few days in Jerusalem during the Passover. And uh, this guy shows up and starts walking along beside them and is listening and talking to them. And, and he's asking, you know, what ha- what's going on? What are you guys talking about? And they're like, have you not heard about Jesus of Nazareth, uh, the, a prophet who was mighty in word and deed, and how our rulers, uh, the Pharisees um, and the, the other the priests, 
delivered him over to the Romans to be crucified. Have you not heard about these things? And, and furthermore, he said he would be resurrected, and now it's the third day and we haven't seen him. And uh, this is, uh, of course, this is Jesus that comes up and is walking with them, though he's not uh, like revealed himself to them. They don't know it's him. And this is his response to them in uh, verses 24 through 27. Sorry, chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. So, uh, first I would have loved to be there for that conversation, to, to walk next to Jesus and hear uh, him tell how these stories, how the scriptures, how the Old Testament points to him, how it's really about him, right? That would have been a really incredible thing to hear. And I think that we um, could and ought to spend our lives doing that, studying the Bible. And I think that we can. Uh, I think we can read the Bible and understand it. And I think that it um, reveals things to us um, over and over again. And one of those things, and this is just kind of the, the, the big one here, is that uh, these stories, they, they tell us a lot about ourselves and a lot about God. They, they tell us, they show us that we um, are a people in need of a Savior. We're sinful. We can't conquer, conquer uh, sin and death on our own. We need a Savior. And, uh, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. And that brings us to uh, kind of my last point, which is a question. Who is the hero of your story? We all have a story, right? Um, as Christians, we, we use the word testimony a lot. We, we share our testimony or we have a testimony. And uh, so who is the hero of that? Are you a um, believer or non-believer? Are you trying to earn salvation? Are you trying to earn God's grace? Um, if, you, if you are here and you are a believer, uh, if you claim to know Christ, I'm incredibly happy for that. Uh, but my, my word to you is um, something I say often is that I need Jesus just as much today as the day I was saved. And what I mean is that Jesus is constantly kind of refining me, uh, making me more like him. And I, I'm always kind of constantly falling short and needing a savior, needing to be redeemed, right? And then if you don't know Jesus, uh, my, my question for you is like, what's holding you back? Are you sitting there thinking, um, you know, staring death in the face, so to say, and, and saying, I can't do this. The, 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 the truth is that there's someone who can, and that person uh, is Jesus who takes on the sin of us. Um, so that's kind of what we're going to close with. The praise team is going to come back up here. Um, if you are struggling with that question, I want you to know that you, um, that salvation is a free gift to all. And in the book of Romans, it says that if you can. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that you will be saved. And so that's all it takes, y'all. Um, if you want to talk about that, if you want to make that decision or something, I'll be in the back. Um, feel free to come talk to me. I'd love to talk. Uh, we're going to pray. God, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for this time of worship here. I thank you for everyone that you've brought here today. I thank you, God, for being the hero of the story. I thank you for sending us a Redeemer that uh, is way more capable than I am or that any of us am, any of us are or that David was. I thank you for Jesus Christ and for the cross and for the forgiveness of sins. And I pray, I thank you for the way that you change people. Um, and I pray, God, today that you would change people's hearts, that you would soften their hearts. 
and um, draw them to you in a way that, um, the way that you do, God, in a way that we can't imagine. And I pray that you would um, just build your kingdom. I just pray for the rest of this service, God, that you would help us to be humble in our worship. I pray for the praise team in this last song here, God, that they would, excuse me, lead us well in worship. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.